verse 10, and a crowd cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And a white robe, verse 11, were, white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest the ancient wait a little while longer uh, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that they should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Father, we thank you for the reading of your precious word. It is you and you alone, O God, that we seek to reveal unto us the word that you have given unto us. But there is no one capable enough, Lord God, to interpret your word. But we know that the interpretation of word is not given by is not by what any man can do, but interpretation. Men and men and uh, prophesy or interpret the word as they are moved by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, minister to us on today. Use us, minister to our souls, minister to our hearts. Help us to understand. Because this word is rich and it is true, and because it may strike fear in the hearts of so many, we as your servants need not fear because we have been saved from this time, and that we will not, O oh Lord God, fear death because that is all the first and only death we as your servants will ever experience. It is the second death, Lord God, that many will experience. And it is our prayer that before the second, before many come to face the second death, we that more and more of your people in this earth, Lord God, will receive Jesus Christ and be saved from this second death. We bless you, Lord God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your warning angels that are in charge of this place today. We thank you, God, for your precious Holy Spirit who, we, who leads and guides us in all truth. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray and give thanks. Amen. So when we so when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar souls of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, how holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer uh, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So I asked the question of myself, and I'm sure you've asked this question as well. Who are the martyrs? Perhaps the first question might be, what is a martyr? Well, the Greek word martus, that's M-A-R-T-U-S, is the English word martyr. And the word martyr simply means witness. I love it. It simply means witness. When the Old Testament priests, you're going to have to go to your Bible, you're going to shift to your Bible. When the Old Testament priests offered an animal sacrifice, the animal's blood was poured out at the base of the altar. But before it was poured out at the base of the altar, the high priest would go into the holy place and he would sprinkle seven times uh, towards the curtain that separated the holy place 
from the most holy of holy. And seven times he would do that with his finger, and then he would then he would go to the horn to the golden altar or the altar of incense, and he would put blood on each on each horn, and then he would come out and he would pour the blood down at the face of the altar of the brazen altar or the altar of sacrifice. And and I had a question about that. He said all of this, so why in the world does he not use all of the blood? Why does he just pour it out at the base of the of the altar? And so I had to ask myself that question and I couldn't rest until I found the answer to that question because it bothered me. You take and you kill something, and then you don't use all this blood. You just pour it out. It's like it's a waste. So I did some research, and I was afraid, and I want to go through this if I can. Yes, Father. What I wanted to do was I wanted to draw an altar. And I wanted to draw the tabernacle. This is the Mosaic Temple. And now, we go to the Bible, uh, Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I also go to, and uh, we're, we're jumping around here a little bit because uh, I want to go to Leviticus first. I want to talk about uh, this altar here that sacrifices blood. Let's start in. Let's go ahead and let's go to verse 1. Start at verse 1. We're going to go to verse 1 through 7. Then I want to talk about this Mosaic temple here. I want to give you a picture of just how it was set up. This is, a, this is an ugly picture, but I think it's pretty accurate for the Mosaic temple. Not the, not the Solomon temple, the temple Solomon built, and not, not Herod the Great, the temple that Herod the Great built uh, later on, uh, but just the Mosaic temple. It says, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, if a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the, com- of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed, and this anointed priest is the high priest, if the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he hath sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord as for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense 
before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So the first thing I want to do is I want to just take you real quick here, show you real quick what we're talking about, how that's set up. We talked about the, uh, when the moment you walk into the gate of the, the, the tabernacle here, you see the brazen altar. The grapes are going across it, and this is presumably filled with a lot of sand, so when they, so when they sacrifice the, the, the bullock, the blood drains down into the sand. So we have the gate here, and here we have the brazen altar. If you go to Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, you will see where God has instructed Moses on how to build the ark, the, the, how to build the brazen altar. And here we have the next thing between here and the tabernacle. Uh, we have what uh, we call the tenement or the tabernacle. We have the labor, and the labor is filled with water, and water must be constantly kept there because every time the priest enters into the holy place, he has to be his feet and his hands have to be washed. They cannot enter into it because if they walk in there without having washed their feet and their hands, and sometimes their entire body, they die. Because see, God doesn't want anything clean, physically unclean or, or, or heart-wise unclean, entering into his tabernacle. You have to be cleaned in order to enter in. And so he enters in through, he, through, the, through the, the door of the tabernacle, and, and the first thing he sees here is he sees the golden altar or the altar of incense. That's where coal is burning constantly, and, 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 the, and the priest puts incense on it, and it just constantly goes up to God. And over here we have the table of showbread. You'll find that, well, let me put the, the golden altar or the altar of incense is in Exodus 31 through 10. And then, of course, the tabernacle of showbread is on the right-hand side when you're entering into the tabernacle. And that's Exodus 25, 1 through 30. And then on this side, you've heard of the menorah. This is the lamp, the golden lampstand uh, in Exodus 25, 31. It talks about uh, how they make the dimensions, how they make the lampstand, what they're supposed to do. God gives specific instructions on how to build all of these things. And then, of course, he gives someone that has been skilled in how to manage how to make these things. There's a little and a holy app, for, to name a few. And then the, the priest would go in here, and this lamp is burning all night, and then he would trim the lamp in the morning. They were required to have olive oil, pressed olive, the oil from pressed olives daily to keep the lamp burning. And it never, they, so it burns all night. So, and, and you ask yourself the question, do, where did they get the olive oil from? Where did they get the olives from? Well, clearly, if God has commanded it, God has made the provision for it. You see, so many of us don't realize that when God gives us something, when God requires something of us, he's already equipped us with the, with the ability to do it, but we don't know how to do it. We don't do it because we see our mind and everything else. We see things that we want, and so we lose out on what God has provided for us. But here we have the lampstand, and of course this right here, the whole tent, if you will, is, is the dimensions of it, everything is right here in Exodus chapter 27, verses 9 through 19. And so here, this is the curtain or the veil that separates the holy place 
from the holiest of holies. I say most holy, but the holiest of holies. And behind the veil is the ark of the covenant of God. It is with the mercy seat. That's where you have the cherubim facing one another, and they're looking down over the, the, the mercy seat. And this is where, and, it, and this is, this was built, of the dimensions of it are given in Exodus chapter 26. So now we have the Mosaic temple. So the priest now, he goes in, he, he, he brings the bull. Now he's the high priest, so he's got to, according to our scripture, he has to offer a sacrifice for himself and others. Remember that. Remember in Hebrew, the, the high priest had to come in and offer a sacrifice for himself and others. Well, he would come in here, he bring the young bullet without blemish. What does that mean, without blemish? That means you cannot have, he cannot be sick, he cannot be lame, he cannot have any kind of disease, he can't be old because he's a young bullet. And he comes here and he lays his hands on that. And when the, when the priest lays his hands on the Holocaust or the Shoah or the, or, the, or, the, or the sacrifice, what we call it, the offering, what he is symbolically doing is he's, when he lays his hands on it, he's transferring ownership of that book from himself or from whoever brought it or the sin offering to God. So now it becomes God. And so he comes here, he lays his hands on it, he cuts his throat of that, of that book, and he, he drains the blood from it, and then he comes here, he makes sure he's washed and he's clean, his feet in the hands, then he comes in, and because he's sinned, he has offered a sacrifice for himself. And he comes in through this gate, this door here, to the tabernacle, and he sprinkles with his blood seven times towards uh, the, 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 um, the veil, if you will, or the curtain. And then he comes back and he puts a little bit of blood on this horn, a little bit of blood on that horn, a little bit on that horn, and that horn, and then he comes and he pours the rest out right here. Why? Why does he pour the rest of that blood out right there? Why not use it all? Well, the reason that he didn't pour it out is because it's been consecrated. So it's holy, in other words. It's been set apart for the purpose of sacrifice. Remember, when he laid his hands on the bullet, the transfer of ownership went from him, uh, whoever brought it, to God. And so now that whatever is offered to God is consecrated, separated, solely apart from him. And so it's going right back into the ground. And so in, in Leviticus chapter, uh, what is it? Um, we'll get to that. Maybe I won't get ahead of myself. So, so now that he's done that, you're saying, well, what does this have to do with Revelation? Hang in there. We'll get it. Uh, so, we, can you guys see that okay? See that all right? So, anything, they, they, they know, know. And this is a beautiful, this is a beautiful, uh, Beautiful conversation between God and, and Moses. It's actually not a conversation. God is just giving him specific instructions on what he is to do. And he just tells him right there in that starting in that 25th chapter of Exodus. He says in verse, he says in verse 9, uh, make sure that you follow these specifically as I've instructed you. And then he goes to verse 40 in that same 25th chapter. He says, now make sure you follow my instructions. To the letter, I'm just going to tell you, let me, let me put it earlier that you follow it every step of the way. You follow everything that I told you to do, do exactly like I told you to do. Don't mess up at all. Don't go here, don't go there. So this is the, this is the tabernacle in the wilderness. And, I, and, and you, when, as you're studying this, you will see that the, you have all these poles over here and back here and back here, and then all these poles here, and you have this glass covering over it. So God is 
God has really thought out this thing so well that it is impossible for an idiot to make a mistake. It's idiot proof. We talk about idiot proof, that's idiot proof. And then he gives somebody to show you that to do it because that person is skilled in knowing how to do it, knowing how to work with metal, knowing how to work with gold, knowing how to work with bronze, knowing how to work with cars, knowing how to work with skin, all of these different things. He put it there. He puts people in position that know how to do this stuff to do it. That's what we need here in the church. We have some, but we need more people who are gifted in various areas. And say, for example, who know who is very gifted in media, who's gifted in money, who, who is gifted in intercessory prayer and in, in evangelism, who's gifted in the youth ministry. We need these people, and so we need to be praying to God to send these people so that we can prepare to go forth and win souls for the building of God's kingdom. That's what that Matthew 22 said this morning, right? Go to the edge of the highway. And so, so now, let me just, I want to do something here because we, we got, the, we got the, uh, the chief priest. Now, let me say this too. Why does the chief priest, why does, what, now, in this, in this fourth chapter, there was something that he said. Those who sin unintentionally, unintentionally, that means either they didn't know or they didn't realize they were doing it. So it was not, it was not malice. It was not in their heart to do something wicked and wrong, to, to deliberately violate God's word. But when the priest, now let me say something. Uh, this is a leadership thing again. We're going right back to leadership. Let me just, so I want to do this on the, before I answer this blood, uh, the rest of this blood uh, issue about the blood being poured out at the foot of the brazen altar uh, and brazen because it's made of brass. Uh, so let me just say this. So if the high priest and unintentionally sins, what do you think happens? Every person in Israel was guilty of that sin because of the leader. We talked about this last year, last week with David. I had no intention of going this way again today, but hey, hello. Uh, and I had to work on this last night. Every, see, he, he sinned unintentionally, uh, and so that means every person in Israel sinned. And we're talking about over 2 million-plus people, plus or minus maybe a few hundred thousand. But every one of them was guilty because of him. He was anointed of God. He had the oil poured down on him. He stood before the tabernacle, and he was anointed with oil. And so he represented God before the people, but he also represented the people before God. He was the mediator between God and the people, like Christ is the mediator between God and men. So he would be the one to sacrifice the, the animals, and he would be the one to offer the blood and to pray for the people as they brought this in the offering. So when leadership is guilty, when leadership does something wrong, then everybody else that's connected with him or her is just as guilty as the leader, even though they know nothing about it. It's really strange, isn't it? So you have to be careful how you lead. I call this corporate guilt. That's what I call it, corporate guilt. Ah, because the high priest is God's anointed representative on the earth, and that's there for the people and the people before God. So his duty requires him to enter the holy place daily and for himself.
himself and for the people. And so he goes into this place daily. But then he goes into the Holy of Holies only one time a year, and that's on the Day of Atonement, where he offers sins and sacrifices for both himself and the people. Every year, one time a year, but here daily, he goes in and he ministers. And now, because he is guilty of a sin, and now the whole nation is guilty of a sin, because he's guilty of a sin, and he has to offer that sacrifice because now he has polluted even the whole of the holy place because of his sin. You are contaminated. Once you sin, that means you are contaminated. And the only way to be uncontaminated is to be to offer that sacrifice at the altar for your sin and for the sins of the people. I love this. So, so when he behaved irrationally or irresponsibly, when he disobeyed set laws, when he mistreated his wife, when he mistreated his children, when she mistreated her husband, when he mis- when they mistreat their neighbors or their co-workers, you cast dark a dark shadow over those people. On your job, you cast a dark shadow over those who follow you because now they feel bad. For the person who breaks the law and runs over, like for example, the gentleman that was driving his car, he must have been drunk, driving his car in D.C. just recently, a couple weeks ago, and he lost control, flipped over, killed killed a young man that was on his way to school, killed him, crushed him. Irresponsible. When that happens, that that casts a dark shadow not just over him, but now his family. I'm feeling, they're just feeling guilty because they. They didn't raise their son to live that way, to be that way, but that's what their son, that's what their child did. So, for the terrorists, like uh, Zarniev, uh, the, the young man in Boston that's being tried, I'm sure his parents didn't raise them, I hope their parents, parents didn't raise them to become terrorists. No parent has raised their child to be, become a terrorist. But for some reason they do, and it brings shame and guilt on their family. Their families can't even walk around, can't even walk with their head up high because people, yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the parents of the, the boy that caused them the death of three people over in Boston during that Boston Marathon, and one of them was a child. Did you know that? And then over 200 others were, some of them were amputated, they lost their leg. You know, lost a leg or both legs, and, and you know, so, yeah, that's the person right there. That's the person that that's his parent. You know, and so you try to, so you try to move, but you can't move anywhere because it's all over, all over. And so when you are a leader, you don't affect just you when you do something stupid, deliberately stupid. I'm not saying when you make mistakes, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody, we don't care who you are, but when you deliberately do something, you can't a dark shadow over those who are closest to you. So therefore, sin at this level requires the high priest as or the leader to offer a sacrifice for himself and the people. The type of sin offering was the type of sin offering was bull, young bull, right? I'm sorry, you had something you wanted to say. No, actually, I did, when you were talking about everybody being involved in the sin, I was thinking about Achan and what he did affected all of Israel. Wow. 
You know, we get a message on that uh, not long ago where Achan stole the accursed thing. And God did not say that Achan sinned. He said Israel sinned. <laughs> so Israel, the whole nation, was guilty. And because of that, it was 18 people died uh, somewhere in that neighborhood, were lost their lives because of what Achan did. His family did, but more people died. Than but when he got caught, not only did he die, but all of his family, all of his cattle, everything that he owned was murdered, was, was, was wiped off the face of the earth. He was then, they were burned. So you, what you do doesn't just affect you, but others as well, especially those connected to you. And it depends, again, on the degree of the thing that you have, the, the offense you have committed. Because if the offense is very egregious, then it's going to affect a whole lot more people. You take somebody's life, you're going, to, you're going to affect the lives of the, of the parents and the family members. And, and, you know, just one thing after another. So, so too many people, too many people today think that lying is the best solution for their problem. Too many people. Honesty, and let me tell you this, honesty is still always the best policy. Honesty is always the best policy. I have not forgotten to answer the question about the Lord. I answered just a part of it. It was not straight. That's part of God. But there's some, there's, there's some other things I want to, I want to cover as well. So, uh, so let me say this. What was the procedure that the high priest used? You guys follow that when you're reading? Here's the first thing. So, as the offer and the presiding official, he had to number one. I don't know if you have that. Okay. Number one, he had to lay his hand upon the head of the bull. Now, laying on the hand, as I said, symbolizes transfer ownership from the person to God. The second thing, he had to slaughter the bull before the Lord, that is, in the presence of the Lord, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You saw that. At the entrance of the tent of meeting. Right? Third thing, he had to cleanse the tabernacle. Um, he had to cleanse the tabernacle by sprinkling some of the blood inside the holy place towards the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies. I made a mistake up here, so kind of to my, my lateness. He does this by taking some blood on his finger and sprinkling it seven times. Here's the fourth thing. He put blood on the four horns of the altar, broken off of the altar incense. This serves to purify the entire outer sanctum or the holy place. So when he when he puts the blood on the four horns of the altar incense, it purifies, it purifies or cleanses the holy place, the most holy place. I love that. So, uh, so this service, this service to purify the entire outer sanctum of the Holy Spirit. So why is the remaining blood poured out at the base of the brazen altar? Number one, I said because it was consecrated, set apart for God. The moment that the moment that the priest laid his hand on the head of the bull, that transferred ownership from the person to God. Therefore, what is given to God is sanctified, set apart for him. So when it's consecrated, it needs to be set apart or set aside for God. And so it became, so it was holy. And so he poured it down at the grace of the altar. But there's a, but 
there's a, a threefold reason, another threefold reason. In addition to that, one reason, let me give you a threefold reason for why he poured the blood out. Number one, the blood, when he poured, when he poured out the blood, the, the pouring out of the blood represents the sinner acknowledging that he deserves to have his blood poured out like water. In other words, he was the one that was guilty. She was the one that was guilty. So this animal is taking their place, and rightly, you're the one that deserves to be punished because you're the one that committed the offense. The animal didn't do anything, but God made a way for life, the blood of the life of an animal, which is the blood of the animal, to represent you, to pay for your sin. Then the second thing, the pouring out of your soul before God in true repentance. That's another thing. When you come to God after having committed an offense, you pray and you ask God for forgiveness. The forgiveness starts here in your heart first. If you and if your heart is not right, you're just going through the motions, then you know it doesn't work. You know what? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Isaiah 58 says it's better than I could ever say. Thank you, Lord. Isaiah 58 says it's better than I could ever say. I didn't know it's not in there today, but I don't know. Spirit is good like that. Listen. Verse 1. Cry loud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that they, they that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Wherefore, some say, why have we fasted, they say, and thou and you see, do not see it? Why do we have, why have we afflicted our soul? No, why have we fasted and did all that stuff? Why have we afflicted our soul and you took no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all your labor. Behold, you, verse 4, you fast for strife and debate. You don't strike because you don't fast because you're repentant, because you want to draw closer to me. You're doing it because it's just a form of fashion for you. But you're not, you know, your heart's not there. And see, when, when it's not in your heart, if your heart is not embracing it, then God doesn't want it because then it's not right. It's polluted. And to smite with the fist of wickedness, you shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is, is, it, is it such a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him going through the motion? Will thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? If this is not this the fast I have chosen, he's chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to do undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. Is that the word fast I call? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? Listen, you can't just go to God any kind of way thinking that God is going to forgive you. No, 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 no. You are guilty of sin. So you can't go to God and say, oh, God, you know, going through the motions. Yeah, child, I went to church today, and boy, we had a great time. And then you walk out and you go, shh, blah, 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 blah. You ever see those Charlie Brown, womp, 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 womp,
actually little symbols up there because they're really laying down out there. You know, some of these commercials, bleep, bleep, bleep. Yeah, some, some people see Christians like that because some people that go to church go out and do that. They give the impression that they, their heart is towards God, their heart is towards God. Because if their heart was towards God, they will walk according to God's word. Amen. Uh, the sixth is still sealed, and I tell you something. So, and the third thing is, I'll save the Lord Jesus Christ, pour out his soul unto death. That's the third one. Christ poured out, and that's, that's what the blood, representing the blood being poured out at the basin of the brass and all, base of the brass and all, brass and all, all three of these. That's what it represents. So, the blood represents, according to Leviticus 17 and 11, the blood represents life because it is, the blood has life in it. If you take the blood from a person's body, what do you have? Death. No more life. So life is in the blood. Now, John 6.63 says uh, it is the spirit that gives life. That's a that's, that's different kind of life. That's a consecrated life. That's a life set apart for Christ. So here, in Revelation, the souls of the martyrs under the altar indicate that their lives were given sacrificially for the glory of God. And here's what it says. I saw, Revelation 6, 9, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Why were they slain? They were slain for the word of God. And for their testimony, they held on to their testimony. Regardless of what people wanted them to do, they did not follow people. They maintained their commitment to Jesus Christ, to following the word of God, to, to living according to the word of God. Too many people, when they get around other people and they see what other people are doing, they say, well, all everybody's doing it, I might as well do it too. No, you have to be convicted. The children, the, the Christians suffered under the, under the Roman leadership because they were different from everybody. They didn't try to force anything on anybody, but they were persecuted simply because of who they were. Nero blamed them for burning down Rome. And when Nero was the one that was responsible for it. Later on, he committed suicide because he just because they got too hot and heavy for it. But they crucified, they murdered Christians who bore the blame for something that they did not do. We are called to live different lives than the world. If we live a life similar to the world, then why in the world does it, why should the world be, come to church? Why should they listen to us? We must represent Christ every moment of every day that we live, whether we're, whether it's in the house, to our, to our, to our, you know, in front of our family members, or even outside of the house. So you don't just put it on when you get ready to go outside and put it back and take it off when you get home like a like suit of clothes. No, you wear it daily. You wear it daily. They lost their lives for the testimony, for the glory of God. They lost their lives for the testimony which they held. Now, the Apostle Paul had the same idea in mind when he wrote the Philippian church, these words, the Philippians 2.17. Yes. And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service for, for your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. 
And the young Timothy, and the young Timothy Paul wrote, but I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. And 2 Timothy, that's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Listen, Paul was martyred for his commitment to the to the to Christ, to Christ, to God and to Christ. Peter was sacrificed, was crucified, upside down on the cross is what we're told, because he didn't feel that he was worthy enough to die in the same manner as his Lord and his Savior Jesus Christ died. So he suffered death that way. James was murdered because of his faith. And so many others. Justin Martyr, Polycarp, and, and countless others lost their lives because they refused to give in to the world's demand. They stuck to their heart. They kept their heart and their focus on Christ. How many of us in here today, when we're faced with the greatest of all challenges, the loss of our lives, uh, if we don't repent and, and give, if we don't denounce Christ and accept something else? 27, 27 Christians have been kidnapped over in Libya, and my father by the ISIS, and I can guarantee you that at some point, unless God intervenes, they're going to behead them. And these martyrs that are saying, how long, how long, are going to be joined by those who have already just recently that have been killed by ISIS and others that are going to be killed by ISIS. And they're going to be saying, how long? So we have to be committed to this, to this thing. And it's not a religion. Christianity is a daily walk. It is a way of life. It's following Jesus Christ. The martyrs were the saints. That's who they were, because you want to know who were the martyrs? They were the saints that were slain by the enemy because of their witness to the truth of God and the message of Jesus Christ. That's what they, that's what they were. Now, I, I, want, I, I went through this, this, this whole thing here with the sacrifice of blood. These martyrs were sacrificed. Their blood was poured out because of who they were and whose they were and because they refused to compromise on that. So we might as well say that this breaking all over here, as soon as you walk in, this day that blood was poured right there. Why? Because it was consecrated to God. When they gave their life to Christ, whatever, whatever happened to them at that point, if they were murdered, if their blood was poured out there, that was sacrifice to God. It's holy, and they are holy. That's why they are where they are. Here, let me tell you something. If they were not followers of Christ, they would not have been under the, they would not be under the altar of God in heaven. I tell you that right now. And I love John because he had he was given a rare opportunity, a very rare opportunity that very few men receive to look into heaven and see what is coming. To look into heaven and see what is coming. The martyrs, these were the same. This is the same reason the Apostle John was confined on the island of Patmos. Why? Because he testified to the word of God and Jesus Christ. That's what Revelation 1, 2 and chapter 1, verses 2 and verses 9 says. So the forces of the Antichrist 
do not accept the truth because Satan wants them to be deceived and accept his lies. Oh, what did he say to Eve? You are not sure to die. God just knows that when the moment that you do it, you become like him, knowing good and evil. No, 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 no. But then you entertain it. Come on, girl. I mean, it's just one drink. Your parents won't know. You can just eat some mints, or you can you can do this little little cover of the alcohol smell. Oh no, go ahead and smoke a little weed. You know, don't worry about it. You just you know it won't be on on your clothes. No, no, no. People just tell you that, but no. You nobody will be able to find it. But then your eyes are all red and all out there, and you got the munchies like nobody's business. But come on now, come on. Let's tell the truth, shame the devil. You got the munchies that. You're acting all erratic, and your parents are, what's wrong with you? Oh, yeah, he's just gone. He's just out there. You're drunk. You can't. You're so neat. What do you call it? Me walking, come over, like you're drunk because you're, because you're just breaking too much. You let people tell you things that you know your parents have told you not to do, and you end up doing them because you feel the pressure, the peer pressure of being around these people, and you want to be accepted. Let me tell you something. Walk away. Walk away. Not just, not just young children, not just young adults, not young people, but adults as well. Many of them, oh, it's only one drink. What the heck? You know, what was what, 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 what one drink help? And let me tell you something else. If you ever, young people, if you ever go to a club and you're partying with your friends, and you order a drink, and you get up from the table, I don't care how much you pay for the drink, when you come back, do not drink it. When I was in my clubbing days, and I got up from the table, and I didn't drink alcohol, but I drink pops, or I had water. And then on my drinking days, when I, you know, from pops and water and stuff, I would get up from the table, and I'd go, go to the bathroom, or go out on the dance floor or something, when I come back, i push that away. I got something new. I would not drink it. Because I don't trust people. People prey on your ignorance. They prey on your innocence. They prey on you. So be careful. If you find yourself in that position, do not, do not, under any circumstances, drink what you have left for any period of time. So, where was that? So the Antichrist will not accept the truth. And they want you to believe his lie. Revelation 19.20, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire and burning with brimstone. And in Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are, and they were to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, the coming of the lawless one, Satan, is, or, or the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous, unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Oh, yeah, let's go, Father. Let's go do this. Yeah.
yeah, let's go do all this stuff. You know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. That's unrighteous. And so you kept doing it, and you kept doing it. So I said, okay, well, let me just let them go. Let me just release them. Let them go do whatever they're going to do. So this lawless one is Satan, as I said, false messiah, whom he is able to perform power and signs and lying wonders. This is an imitation of Jesus Christ who performed miracles and wonders and signs. Every single thing that God does, the devil is going to imitate. He's going to imitate. Why? Because if you if, if he sees that that draws, if what God does is drawing you closer to him, he's going to want to pretend something else and cause you to draw. And so you're always playing that tennis match, that ball going back and forth, back and forth. So you have to say enough is enough. I believe God's word is the truth, and that's it. I'm not going back and forth across this thing over and over again. That's just messing my mind up. It's causing me turmoil. It's causing me confusion. I don't know what to do. Yes, you do. Stay with the word of God. Why? Because the word of God never changes. From generation to generation to generation to generation, the word of God is constant, never changes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Always. God's word is the most stable word you will ever find. People will change their mind, but the word of God will never change. People will change their ideas about something. You will, but God's word will never change. Remember that. Jesus said, and here's the 20, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him, in your midst, as you yourself also know, Jesus did miracles, signs, and wonders. And Satan will do the same thing. And I know we say I heard this over and over again. Yeah, hear it some more. And the martyrs cry. This is the second thing I observed under this, under this, in, in this, in this fifth uh, seal being opened. They cried with a loud voice, saying, "How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge?" and avenge our blood of those who dwell on the earth. This, their question implies that their murderers are still alive on earth. These martyrs are apparently from the early part of the tribulation. We talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That was when the tribulation began. So these obviously are from that period. But they represent all who laid down their lives for Jesus Christ and the cause of God's truth. And they are encouragement to all of us today who may be called to follow them. Those, those Christians that have been kidnapped by ISIL, one day their death is going to come. And so their encouragement is to remember the scriptures. Remember the ones that are up there in heaven right now around the altar. Remember those that were slain. And hold fast, because when you leave this place, you're going to be there. Now, John, this is John's second eye in the spirit. In the spirit, while in the spirit, I saw these things. And so here, John is saying, he sees these people. So to be absent from the body then answers the question, is to be present with who? The Lord. So these, so if they follow them, then they are assured, and we are assured, that our souls, yes, hallelujah, that our souls, the souls of the martyrs, are in heaven 
so will our souls be when we will await the resurrection of the body. Revelation 20 and 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, but their witness to Jesus Christ and the word of God, who had, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's a millennium. And they also lived, and they, and they, and that they are at rest. That is, they are at rest. Rest. They are rolled in heavenly glory. Uh, the question some of you may be asking there is this: Is it Christian for these martyr saints to pray that God would forgive? Would, would uh, I'm sorry? Would, that he would pay vengeance on those who kill, call them? Lose their lives. Is it, is it Christian to, to ask God to kill these people or to deal with them for what they did to them? What does the scripture say? My guess is all bets are off once you get up there. See, they prayed for them, probably prayed for them while they were killing them, like Stephen, like Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They prayed for them while they were in this world. But the question is, is it, is it Christian for these modern saints to pray for vengeance on their murder? After all, we already talked about this. We can more likely than not believe that they did. They did ask for them, right? I believe that they prayed to God to give them, but they know not what they do. I believe they follow Christ's example. Matthew 5, 10 and 12 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. But so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then verse 43 through 48, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and you and hate your enemy. Isn't that what you heard? Have you heard that before? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Uh, but Jesus says this. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to ride on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? I mean, that's easy. That's the easy part. Love those who love you. That's the easy part. So, so do you not do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you what what do you do? More than the others. Nothing. Because other people do the same thing. Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Many times we say, be holy, therefore are perfect, therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. What are we talking about? What are we talking about? Matthew uses the word perfect. What does it mean? Oftentimes we hear the perfect means, that perfect means mature. And in some instances that's true. However, as it is used here, 
Christ is commanding believers to strive to be like him in every area of your life, to walk in human integrity and virtue. Integrity means blameless and obedience to the teaching of God's holy word. That is having a singleness of heart, a singleness of mind towards God, regardless of what's going on around you, regardless of all the noise and sound like they're having fun, regardless of that, don't be pulled in by that. You have a singleness of mind, and that's on Christ Jesus himself. And then virtue is excellence. We talk about glory in the spirit of excellence. That's what we're talking about, virtue, excellence. Who, who can, uh, what was it about the excellent woman? The, the, the virtuous woman, we call it. Who can find a virtuous woman or an excellent woman in, in, in Proverbs 31? The, the, the Apostle Paul describes virtue in this manner, and I love it. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any virtue, excellence that is, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Virtue, Philippians 4 and 8. Their cry, examine, let's examine their cry. I'm trying to finish here real quick. Let's examine their cry. The martyrs cry or question whether their enemies would be judged, but when? See, I'm glad you didn't answer because you, you figured there's something else coming down the pipe. Didn't you? Yeah. I know you probably figured me out by now. Not that the, the enemy would be judged, but when? How long, O oh Lord, has been the cry of God's suffering people throughout the ages? Psalm 74, 96. We do not see our sign. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh, God, how long will the adversary reproach that is insult, scorn, and mock? Will the enemy blaspheme to speak or, or regard with contempt or rebellion your, your name forever? Psalm 79.5, how long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? The saints in heaven know that God, God will eventually judge sin and establish righteousness in the earth. But they do not know God's exact schedule. No one does. Jesus himself says, no man knows the day or the hour. Only the Father. That's reserved for the Father. It is not personal revenge that they seek, but the vindication or justifying of God's holiness and the establishment of God's justice. Every believer today who sincerely prays, thy kingdom come, is repeating this petition. How long, Lord? How long, Lord? before you come? How long, Lord, will you free us from this bondage of sin? How long, Lord? How long? God's response. God made it clear to these martyrs that their sacrifice was an appointment, not an accident. See, you are here for a reason. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. You're not a blip on the radar screen. God is, you are directly in God's constantly, and that others would join you. In other words, not only the martyrs, but we pray here in the earth that more would join us. Not the church, not, not Jesus Christ ministries global, but the kingdom of God, the family of Christ. That's what we pray for more than anything else. More than church membership, Christ membership, kingdom membership. Even in the death of his people, God is still in control. Psalm 115.15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his sight. You are precious in God's sight. So God is always in control. He sees what's happening. 
you and I for fear. That doesn't bother us. shouldn't bother us. Why? Because we know where we're going. The martyrs are showing us right now. They are with Christ in heaven. How long, Lord, are they crying? It is God, so, and so there's nothing to fear. So God says, then, the scripture goes and says, then, a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest, that is, be patient a little while longer, until both the members, the number of their fellowship, fellow servants, and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. What was that? You might ask, what was that? Many others would be murdered for their faith before the Lord would return and establish his kingdom. That's what he said in Revelation 14, 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labor and their works follow them. What is the significance of the white robe? In Matthew 22, 11, and 12, it, uh, it is the wedding garment. It's considered the wedding garment. Remember the man, God walked in and said, well, well who are you, friend? How did you get in here? You're not cold, right? Well, he, he didn't have the wedding garment on. You see, the wedding garment is an indication of what has taken place in your heart. So that means that you've given your heart to Christ. You cannot have white in, in heaven and have a heart that is black as cold. And mean and, and pernicious and wicked and, vic- and vicious. No, 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 no. You can't have that. White is the color of heavenly victory in the book of Revelation. It is of the revelation of the heavenly faith. Finally, the white robe represented the martyr's justification through Christ in the face of their, con- of their condemnation by the world. In other words, God declares you righteous. God declares you right. In other words, you have the right robe. God has given you a right robe, then you've been justified. And that means you've been declared righteous. In other words, you have been approved. You have got God's approval. You've got God's seal on your forehead. You are in. You are in the kingdom now. You are in the kingdom now. And that's an awesome thing. You are in the kingdom of God. And and so the robe is a sign or a pledge of the glory which is to be yours in the first resurrection. Revelation 4, 4, chapter 2, verse 4 and 6. And I saw thrones, and they they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until thousand years and were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. In the first resurrection. You and I, sitting here today, staying faithful to God, faithful to this kingdom of God, faithful to the work of Christ, committed to everything that Christ has called us to, we have a guarantee of the white robe and the crown that we will be receiving when we get to heaven. And we will be with the first resurrection. That means we won't die the second death, just the one death. 